Where are you headed? Long Kwai. Long Kwai Fong. I can walk you there. First time in Hong Kong? Uh, yes, it is. I'm guessing it's not yours. No, I live here. This is crazy. Yeah, it's pretty much like this every night. Cool, nice to meet you. Yeah, it was nice to meet you, too. Bye. Bye. Really? Josh. What are you doing here? I actually live here now. This skyline. It's easy to see why people fall in love with it. Yeah. Maybe you just haven't been in the right places. Like where? Are you hungry? I'm always hungry. All right. I'm gonna take you where the locals eat. It's really hesitant at first, but this is, this is, this is really good. It's driving crazy. <laughs> I think I got it. There you go. Hey, to eat politely is not to eat at all. What would you like to know? Help, study, love? Love. Oh, oh my oh. God. What's this? chance and you went for it you're never gonna have to look back and wonder what if thanks Hello, and welcome to a special sub-series of the East Green West Screen podcast called Hollywood on Hong Kong. In this short series, we have been looking at select Western film portrayals in and about the Fragrant Harbor. Joining me on this final episode in this season of Cinematic Discovery is a Podfather of Asian Cinema, co-founder of the Podcast on Fire Network, Mr. Kenny B. Hey, folks. Thanks, Paul, for having me. And I don't want it to end, Paul. Because <laughs> cinematic discovery and putting your sort of creative focus in gear, not that, I, that it's not there, but, but it's putting gear uh, when you present work uh, before me. Uh, and th- this has been fun work. It really has worked wo- wonders for me. The majority of the movies, as I've said before, have been new movies or uh, rewatches for the first time in 20 years, in the case of Chinese Box. And I've greatly enjoyed the, the fun coverage, but also the context that you have presented before me and the listeners. So... Well, we, whatever movie you put in front of me, I'll do the work on. But this does not include any more Hallmark movies after you graciously <laughs> gifted me Mariah Carey's A Christmas Melody last year. I can't be mad at the movie, but you'll get a thank you, Paul, and no thanks. I'm full. Yeah. I'm, I'm getting coal in the stocking this year. so No, but um, it's, it's, you, you, you graciously gifted it, but I don't need any more because it, it, <laughs> it's not for me even on that 
that sort of uh, uh, masochistic level. No, it's it's just yeah. it, it it really isn't for me. It was a little bit of a chore to get through, despite uh, despite being easily digested hallmark stuff. But that, thank you for gifting it though. Uh, you're quite welcome. And it, it is kind of an ongoing joke, I think, over here in the States with a lot of people. One of the podcasts I listen to, they actually joke about it. Uh, uh, the husband who does the podcast, um, he kind of always teases his wife because his wife really enjoys watching them. And they get into all the same stuff, you know, how it's, you know, most of these are basically carbon copies of some more famous story you know um you know so there was one that i saw i think last year the year before it was a basically a ripoff of miracle on um 34th street you know where santa claus goes and works at macy's basically or Coles, or depending on which version you watch the um and, and there was one where they did that except this time the, the this lady became santa and she you know she was pretending to be santa and then she started exhibiting things like a real Santa. It was, it was kind of, you know, they always do that. They borrow elements from things like it's a wonderful life or, or some other, you know, home alone or some of the other kind of famous thing. And they'll throw a few elements here and there and, but it's all saccharine and sweet. And I like them because I like to have them on in the background, especially when I'm wrapping presents or, you know, writing Christmas cards or putting up the tree or that kind of stuff, because it's not something you really need to pay attention to all that much. Um, <laughs> and, to- and totally screwed in the background. Totally. It's a wonderful life in the background. Yeah. Only only tw- 2018 Hallmark stuff. Yeah. Um, and I still watch all the old stuff, too. Um, I usually have a psych- circuit of stuff that I go through for the holiday season. Um, but I like to see some of the new stuff. And the interesting thing is that Netflix is really getting on the wagon now in putting out yearly stuff that's rivaling in some ways the hallmark stuff it's very you know not the same volume of it though not the same volume but still it's like every year they've got about three or four Mm. new productions that they're putting up whereas you know of course hallmark's doing at least 12 new ones um which they kick off right after um halloween weekend usually not even after thanksgiving they 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 uh they uh oh no they they start their christmas countdown um right at the end of october all the way through november and into uh december all the way up to the new year and so yeah netflix isn't doing that kind of volume but still they're doing they're, they're really trying to capture a portion of that because it's a lot it's you know last year they had uh the christmas a christmas prince you know, where a girl goes to this small, unknown European country and she happenstance encounters a prince and, you know, it's Christmas time and they fall in love and yada, yada. And then this year they had a sequel, Christmas Prince, The Royal Wedding, you know, hmm. and just a year later. Ooh, timely. Um, so they are, they're, you know, really fallen on board. I don't think they have the Hallmark touch just yet because... <laughs> they're not that bad. <laughs> when you When you look at some of the better Hallmark productions, really what it comes down to, and I know this sounds super nerdy and I apologize to listeners, the because Hallmark is about greeting cards, um, but they're also about selling things like ornaments and decorations and a lot of that stuff. And their art direction, you know, for the, the houses or the settings that they're doing, and on some of these is just impeccable. I mean, it really looks super well produced, even though the stories are just... You know, so basically they really focus on that look and feel, trying to get that Christmas card look and feel. Hmm. And that's one thing I think Netflix really 
doesn't quite have down just yet. They're, they're, they're not there with, um, kind of the level of quality, if that makes mm. sense. But, they, um, they, they have the money to spend though, on, on, uh, set in art direction for sure. So, oh, yes, just, yes. let's just replicate that. Uh, you're welcome to cut this out, but that that movie, A Christmas Melody, that's the one that was directed by Mariah Carey or co-directed, I, I don't know. And as I said, I, I can't be mad at it because it's Christmas. But what, one thing that com- confused me, like I'm nothing against Mariah Carey, simply not my style of music. I've been aware of her for many, many years because I'm a kid of MTV and she was around in that early 90s days of MTV and is still around and all of that. I always gotten the impression unfairly or fairly that she was perceived as a diva in the industry and and you know that crafts uh, like a negative image of you so why on earth in a movie that she directed did she have to go and play a b-word right yeah, I, she, I, she didn't paint she, herself she, as an angelic character i thought like that, that's a good opportunity to become the heroine uh, of your story but no she was yeah. essentially the villain and i i couldn't figure out why she wanted to stand by that other than maybe she she, she doesn't really care about that image yeah. and she has fun with it who knows yeah maybe i think she's just you know owning it probably and right. uh yeah that's something that you know some other celebrities out there could probably you know do right. Um, you know, sort of taking ownership of their dark side, uh, Jackie Chan. I'm kidding, but yeah, you know, it's again, it's it's for me, it's just something I get in the season, and yeah, they're cheesy, and not a lot of people don't like them, but won't waste time on them because um, you know they're disposable. Yeah, it's it's you watch one, it's not like you're gonna go and rewatch it. <laughs> you know, it's not like a Alistair Sim version of Christmas Carol or Again, Jimmy Stewart's It's a Wonderful Life, but they're there, they're on, and especially if you have access and you don't have to buy them, I mean, it's just, again, something you can kind of keep on in the background. Kind of like if you put on Christmas radio tunes in the background instead when you're trimming your tree or doing that kind of stuff, I think. Um, Funnily enough, l- 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 listening to radio over here because... Uh, some of my colleagues have the radio on all day and I pause it and, and, and catch like 10-15 minutes of radio every day because you go back and forth. The, there's been little to no repetition of, uh, you know, the standard Christmas music this year. It's been a lot of like, oh yeah, this is probably a new Christmas mm. song or something from the archives that they haven't pulled out because you normally hear, at least over here, obviously of the classics, but they always play the Pogues, uh, Christy Mac, something, something. Uh, fairy tale of new york song uh, by the post mm. and that goes on and on and on during christmas i don't think i've heard it once so it's yeah. so, someone wanted to rejuvenate the playlists in 2018 or something so i don't yeah anyway, anyway. good on him but we are not here just to talk about the holidays we are here actually to talk about some films and um we're going to be talking about our final film in this sub-series that we've been doing which is uh, love hong kong style and that is the independent film Already Tomorrow in Hong Kong. But before we jump into that, I do have some listener mail, well, kind of mail, commentary or uh, message if you want to get uh, into the sort of uh, newfangled social media side of things. But um, uh, two episodes back, we were talking about uh, A Many Splendored Thing, and I had mentioned that I there was a Hong Kong film or a film that I couldn't remember that talked about William Holden, the actor, and uh, it was like an old granny who had said she had had a romance with him when he was in 
the region shooting for either that film or Susie Wong. I, I want to say it was it was that film. Um, and we had uh, listener Jenny who wrote in and pointed out that it was the film Comrades Almost a Love Story, oh. um, where there's a an elderly auntie or granny character who is the one who makes reference to that. And it's been so long since I've seen Comrades, and yeah. uh, I tried to find my old copy uh, to dig it up and watch it, and it's still buried in, in storage, unfortunately. Um, but big thanks to Jenny for, you know, again, letting us know so that we could, uh, you know, put that out there. And I'm going to come back and talk a little bit about Comrades, too, at the end of the show today. Um, so, yeah, if, you, if you're not sure what we're doing here, Again, this is the series that we're looking at films about Hong Kong um, from, you know, the outside, from Hollywood and from some European cinema as well. And so here we are kind of at the final episode of the season. We leave the world of Susie Wong behind, which was our previous episode, and we jump ahead about five and a half decades to 2016. So quite a big jump. Um, but we're going to see, again... Quite a few related themes to some of the things we talked about in both uh, A Many Splendid Thing and also uh, The World of Suzy Wong. So we're talking about this film, which I guess technically is considered an independent film, um, Already Tomorrow in Hong Kong from 2016, from director Emily Ting. This is kind of her first narrative feature, I guess you would say. She's worked as a producer on some other films. She did a documentary called Family Inc., um, a few, few years prior to this. And I tried to track down that documentary, but unfortunately it's buried in what we would call sort of academia uh, distribution. So a lot of times filmmakers will make a documentary and it gets somehow under the control of a distributor who only wants to sell to universities, basically. And you can order it, if you have a university ID, but it's going to cost you in the range of uh, 200 or so dollars. No. Yeah. Why, um, why, yeah. why would you have to overpay to get access to that? I mean, this is, I, I'm not an academic person because I never educated myself further. So. Yeah, this is, a, again, another side of academia that really frustrates me. And um, we've talked about this a little before, and Kenneth and I have talked about this on occasion um, offline as well, where... You know, because I follow, even though I'm not in academia anymore, I follow some academics still. And they talk about, you know, releasing a new book. And I'm, you know, I'll be, oh, a new book on Hong Kong cinema. I'll get really excited. And I'll go to Amazon and I'll look at the price. And it's, you know, like $200. And that's even for the Kindle version for, Whoa. you know, these, 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 these academic um, books. And it's just super frustrating because it's like, okay, you know, they talk about ivory towers and on all of that stuff. And it's true in some senses because you are really limiting yourself to a much smaller group of students um, who are, you know, studying that, who are going to have access to that because they, they can't afford to buy it themselves. But they're going to be able to get it through the university library. But everybody on the outside, you know, you either have to shell out, you know, or you do without. Or you try to maybe find it illegally on some kind of torrent, uh, academic torrent thing, uh, which I'm not advocating at all. But, you know, again, it, it's, it would it's, be amazing, by the way, if they, uh, if you had torrent, but also academic torrent, like the next level. Oh, no. <laughs> they, 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 there are systems out there that are, really? 
that are for, you know, that students use, um, mm-hmm. that it's, it's basically, um, you know, for academic papers and things. Um, and it's, of course, it's not as, as well stocked, I would say, <laughs> as <laughs> your, your mass media torrent sites out there. Um, but yeah, they, those do, those do exist. And it's unfortunate because it's, you know, you, you would think that as an academic, as a scholar, you would want your, work to be viewed and read and discussed by as many people inside and outside of academia as possible. Mm-hmm. And this, by the same token, you have filmmakers who get their work in the academic circles through distributors who are only interested in licensing these, you know, and that's part of the reason why these have high fees um, to universities and to college professors who are going to show them in their classes and, and things like that. I think she even referenced that um, director Emily, Emily Ting, that uh, her documentary is hard to watch and hard to find in one of the interviews you linked to. So I guess that paints a, paints a, a picture as well in terms of that. Yeah, in- indeed. Um, but we're going to talk, I'll, I'll make a, a couple references because you can find uh, the trailer for Family Inc. Um, on YouTube fairly easily. And I think um, there's one on uh, Vimo, which uh, Vimeo, which has an even better kind of look re- resolution version on it that you can watch, and you can kind of see some of the elements that she took from that, which is basically almost an autobiographical documentary about herself and a, a point in her life, and how she took a lot of that and crafted that into building. Uh, this story uh, that she tells us here. So primarily the cast is centered around the two main characters here of Josh, played by Brian Greenberg, and Ruby, played by Jamie Chung. And the story is basically taking a chance encounter in Hong Kong between these two working professionals, which leads to an impromptu date that generates some sparks but never fully materializes. When the pair chances upon each other again... Uh, sometime later, a new opportunity presents itself, but are their lives really too enmeshed, um, especially in other relationships, for them to take advantage of this second chance? So this is, I guess, uh, as has been described in both some interviews by the director herself, and I was talking a little bit about this with Kenneth offline, as what they call a walk-and-talk kind of a film, And um, there's a particular film in question that kind of established this style. And the director herself has mentioned that, um, yeah, she's very much borrowing from that. And I have not seen those films. I'm not familiar with those films, but I think Kenneth has a bit of familiarity so he can talk about them. But even she says that um, she knows that she, if those films set the standard, she felt it was a shame not to be able to go ahead and even you know, use that format, even if it's not going to be up to the same standard, because she feels that there are additional stories that can be told, um, you know, using that standard. So, Kenneth, let me throw it over to you, because you have a bit more familiarity with those films. Well, I think uh, she probably referenced, and any cynical reviewer would reference, uh, Before Sunrise, which I think is the first in that series that Richard Linklater 
directed. Before Sunrise is like 93, 94, 95, stars Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, who just had her birthday in uh, during the time of recording. I just because I, I know we brought it up, and yesterday literally was her recording, um, her birthday, Julie Delpy. And it, it's a very small movie. He he meets her in during a train trip in Europe, and they stop in Vienna and decide to. Um, spend a day together because what the heck it's only going to be a night and they walk the streets of Vienna and encounter people and have uh, long form discussions about stuff it's very dialogue heavy and then you know by the end there are sparks and they made I believe an additional two movies but I haven't seen maybe I saw the second one and there was a third one that then fast forwarded to the latter stages in their lives because it the second before movie if it was even called uh, before uh, something something took place li- literally as many years after probably as uh, you know if it's 10 years after li- literally uh, the lives of the characters are now uh, depicted as 10 years later but uh, as you said richard linklater i mean uh, he he doesn't have ownership and he probably just doesn't claim ownership of that uh, genre walk and talk romance and uh, emily's spot on there's stories to be made from that template. So if you consider it a genre or a subgenre, you don't claim ownership of that. So what the heck? Like make your story and uh, accept that challenge of uh, standing out from the crowd, just like any other filmmaker would embrace that challenge. I'm gonna make uh, an action p- picture. I'm gonna make a comedy. Uh, that's uh, I'm gonna make another Christmas movie because there's plenty of them. But I'm gonna try and make it good. So if you're a cynical viewer and reviewer drop the sort of like oh it's a rip of of before sunrise because just watch it man and uh it'll be over and done with um quick enough and then you can make your determination if this walk and talk style filmmaking was enjoyable or not so that's all there is to it really and before sunrise uh, back in the day anyway was perfectly enjoyable because they had a good back and forth uh, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy and uh, if you like actors acting and dialogue heavy and smooth and natural delivery of such dialogue heavy back and forth then it's it's absolutely a charming a charming piece uh, so um so i'm not uh, trying to dissuade anyone from from viewing that over subsequent entries in that uh, series indeed and i think all the other film that gets a little bit of reference here too is uh, lost in translation although um i mean this this pretty much feels like it fairly well stands on its own. I don't think it's trying to copy anything. And the director herself says that it's really based on her own experience. And so we'll talk a little bit more about uh, about that as we get a bit further into it. Before we talk about, you know, the story proper, well, I guess even before we talk about the actors, um, Kenneth, I mean, what were your, you know, what's your general thoughts on the film? Good film, okay film, boring film? I mean, this not isn't really a genre that I think uh, draws you in necessarily that, you know, being sort of the uh, Hong, love Hong Kong style genre isn't something that you, you know, snap to attention to anytime there's a release on something. So how did you find this? I probably should snap into attention because it really takes the boxes of stuff that I, I can sink my teeth into, especially watching actors acting. And uh, this is just a case of something that didn't stay on my radar for more than one minute as you peruse the internet. Because I, I know I've heard of it, the title, but I didn't do any research. And then, then like, oh, another ninja, ninja movie. Kenneth goes back to his crap. And then, then it's off my radar. Now, but I, I, I enjoyed it. I, I, I think I 
even in parts greatly enjoyed it. I, I, I'm a sucker for even micro movies in terms of setting and uh, limited cost. So you know the opposite of of sort of uh, um, rather if you talk a similar micro movie things that are set in one space only. You know movies like Phone Booth. Uh, I, I enjoy because uh, there's a cool challenge in terms of how do you get that. Uh, to be involving for 70 minutes or 80 minutes. And uh, I think uh, director Emily Ting has an ear for dialogue, uh, interaction. She uh, builds the connection quite uh, quite solid, uh, in, in a solid way. And she got two appealing leads to drive this romance uh, forward. And uh, I think she captures uh, Hong Kong beautifully. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's overly stylized. Uh, they, they shoot a lot uh, at night, so obviously they got the colors to lean on and it's 78 minutes of, of i think valid drama that then leaves us with something to to ponder uh, which is perhaps maybe the controversial part of the movie that it uh, it's a it, it that doesn't have a traditional resolution i suppose uh, but uh, i think you can uh, as a couple if you watch it as a couple you can discuss certain things post viewing uh, considering how this movie movie ends but uh, i enjoyed it uh, for for the leads only they uh, you, you never know how uh, actual actual life partners are going to come off on film because i believe these uh, uh these two people are married in real life uh, yes indeed i think they got married uh, the year this was released if uh, memory serves so. and you never know how that's going to work out and obviously if you're a cynical re- reviewer again you jump to geely you know when it doesn't work out when you know when ben affleck and jennifer lopez at the height of their romance does a movie together and it doesn't work so i think that's a highlight that uh, they take their life chemistry to professional the professional working place and actually achieves chemistry so that was nice to see yeah i uh, let's talk a little bit about um the the two leads so jamie chung um, if you're familiar with her, I mean, she's got a pretty large body of work and some high-profile work as well. Um, so I've known her for quite some time. Um, Brian Greenberg, I think this is maybe the first thing I've seen him in. I mean, he's been around. He does. Uh, he's done some TV. He's done some film, um, but more on the indie circuit. I know he's worked with director Emily Ting before as she was producing a couple projects that he was involved in, and that's how... Um, he had heard about this project was what they were talking with her. And then, uh, he brought it to the attention of his, I think his then girlfriend, Jamie, and then they both read the script and they wanted to be, you know, on board with it cause they really liked the script. So, but, uh, Jamie came out of, if you're not familiar with her background, she came out of a uh, reality TV way back in the day when it was just MTV's real world. So for you old timers, <laughs> <laughs> who remember well, sort of when you're talking several TV generations 0, right? later of mtv real world i remember real world but yes, that was like mid 90s yeah. and you know, yeah. no one remembers um, those people anymore i think yeah and she she was in i want to say real world uh, san diego was the season she was in so it wasn't the original season but it was several seasons later um and uh, you know she is considered to be one of the bigger success stories of the sort of the real world alumni who's gone on to make a big career for themselves, particularly in, you know, in the public eye Mm -hmm. with regard to media or making movies or um, being in the entertainment industry. She she really, by the way, comes off as not someone who fell into acting and then tries to make a living not knowing anything about acting. I think she she looks like she either during real world, they already had an acting education um, 
or you know ongoing because she, she looks mm. like a proper actress to me yeah i you you do get the sense that she she she's on the ball she has experience and i think this really i mean i've seen her described her and um her husband described as a a power couple <laughs> and i really do think she understands you know the media and how how to use that to her best advantage and uh, if you've if you delve into any of the stuff that they do together on YouTube, some of the pr- promotional work that they do, some of the commercial work that they do, um, you know, they're putting themselves out there as a couple, but they're also selling themselves, you know, so it's, it's, I, I, you do get the sense that, you know, yeah, she, I think she gets, she gets the media and she knows how to use it to her advantage. And I don't mean that in any, any kind of negative or derogatory sense. Um, she just has media smarts and media savvy. So it's interesting to see her, you know, sort of come out of that background and into some of the more professional work she's done. Um, Interestingly, she, you know, does have a Hong Kong connection beyond this film, even though she said that this was the first time she'd actually been in Hong Kong was for shooting this film. She is a Korean American by descent. And she said one of the reasons she really liked to do this film was because she felt a connection to the Ruby character's experience. And Ruby is, um, I guess, Chinese American who goes back to Hong Kong for work. She was, but she's, you know, never been there, so she really has no idea. She doesn't speak Chinese. And uh, Jamie Chung's had said that her experience going to Korea for the first time was very much the same thing. You know, not speaking Korean, not really understanding the culture well, um, and kind of being in that era as a t- area of as, as a tourist but also having cultural shock because of the unfamiliarity mm. and and i guess a sense of feeling that this is something you are expected to be familiar with so um i f- i found that to be you know an interesting point but she does have a hong kong connection as i mentioned because she was in dragon ball evolution oh, really? and we won't we won't blame her for that right but uh, who else was in dragon ball evolution do you remember mr uh mr Brarson? Mr. rides on public transports, and uh, he doesn't care about that. Nor does people, Mr. Chiang Fat. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so you know she, you know she does have that uh, that little bit of uh, one degree of separation with, when it comes to Hong Kong. She's also been in the Hangover movies. I think the second and the third one, she has uh, supporting character roles. She was the voice of the character Gogo in Disney's Big Hero Six animated feature. Um, she's been in television series as well. I know that, um, she's in a somewhat controversial series on ABC back way back in 2008. I want to say it's called Samurai Girl. It's a mini series based on, um, so these sort of young adult, you know, tween novels. Um, and it's controversial because of some of the portrayals, especially in the, in the modern era of, I guess, Asian stereotypes in some ways, but um, it's still, you get to see a lot of Asian actors uh, acting in English, and it's a, it's an ABC kind of network show, so it's it's got, you know, a little bit of violence, and it, but it's pretty saccharine um, for, for what it is, and I think you can, it's pretty readily available. You can find that series on um, on iTunes if that's something that's, uh, that's up your alley. Um, she also had a stint on Once Upon a Time, um, the Disney ABC series about all the fairy tale characters, and she got to play Mulan. And right. I think I, I was watching that up into the season when her character was introduced, and then I kind of fell away from that series. I think it's still running. Um, 
but it, it got kind it started to get a little bit redundant for me um, and I've always meant to kind of go back and catch up with it because I do like stuff that uh, Disney has their fingers in but uh, it's just it's just you know I just haven't had the gravitational force enough to uh, or the desire I guess I should say to to want to get back to it maybe maybe someday um, but it was I was very excited when they cast her um, as Mulan and the season that she was on. And so I, she got some work out of that. Again, I think that's not still running at the time of this. I don't know if she's still involved with that or what they did with her character. Um, there's just so much stuff out there to keep up with. It's it's hard to keep up with everything, you know. Um, real world or first world media problems, right? Well, well, well just exclude Hallmark from your TV yeah. uh, t- TV uh, sort of schedule. Then then yeah. you free up well, time, you fool. It, ABC television is not that far removed from Hallmark, let me tell you, <laughs> especially when Disney's in, well, because Disney is the owner of, of ABC now, so okay. um, pretty much everything that they do is, but, um, you know, it's it's interesting to see her kind of come out of that um, sort of MTV thing and, and be able to get in with uh, with ABC Disney, because what we often see is the reverse. We see, you know, especially you know, young kids who grow up under sort of the ABC Disney wing, if you will, and then they kind of break out and they go wild, right? And mm-hmm. thinking of your Britney Spears and, and um, you know, your, your Miley Cyruses and, and stuff like that. And um, so in her a, case... A real world was never, at least when I watched it back in the day, yes, I watched it back in the day, I was glued to my effing TV, <laughs> but it wasn't scandalous as such. They weren't leaning on like, uh, like you know, night vision camera showing humping in the night or anything no, like that. Not, it, it was much more tame than what you but it seen was today. The, it, it was sort of the grandfather because I do remember, I want to say it's the first season, um, you know, there was a, there was a, there was one of the actresses on the first season, like, or maybe it was the second season. She ran out into the ocean and took her, took her top off. You know, it was kind of, it was starting to point in that direction a little bit, but certainly no, it was certainly much more tame than, you know, the, the kind of stuff they do today mm. with, you know, naked and afraid and, mm. Uh, passion island and and, and because the know. sort of point is you, you can't get in with disney if you have this hugely scandalous past of just being wild and out there on reality no, tv so, so so i think the real world she appeared on it was I, it sounds to me like real world still tries to keep it in check a little bit you know mm. yes indeed um so yeah i mean she's somebody that i had you know if she's involved in a project it's been something that i would kind of you know uh raise my eyebrow to and have a bit more show a bit more interest but as i said unfortunately uh, mr greenberg's not been really on my radar but he does seem to have a pretty solid body of work behind him as well um but as we said they are an actual couple and in doing a film like this i guess you kind of run some risks of does your real world chemistry translate to on-screen chemistry and one of the interviews i think jamie actually said that um, she was afraid that being together all the time would be problematic for the production so they actually she actually requested they have separate hotel rooms so that while they were filming he didn't like that (laughs) that he did not like that yeah and there was a you know that there was some space between them so that when they would go to work they would work and they'd be able to get into these characters and i guess not bring the work back home um, you you know what i I kind of agree on that because it is location shooting off the roll and uh, you know you're you're kind of maybe you need to go a little bit method in that regard um 
I don't think that's a bad uh, bad uh, thing, actually. It's not that pretentious. Uh, no, not thing at all. And uh, if, if uh, memory serves, it was a 14-day shoot. So, mm. you know, we're not talking like a, you know, a lengthy six-month style production or anything of, of, of that nature. So, yeah. um, But I, for me, I do think the couple's chemistry works well in the roles. I think it uh, there's a kind of um, a natural fit that they fall into um, in most of the scenes, I would say. And it's uh, because a lot of it really weighs heavily on their shoulders because there's not, I mean, there is a supporting cast here, but it is not extensive um, by any means. It's usually them, the two of them just talking. Yeah. And I, I think also she, she tracked back in her, in her head as she crafted this to the early nineties talking of before sunrise. And I, I kind of did as well when I found out this was, autobiographical to an extent and it came back to that thing i think robert rodriguez preached and certainly kevin smith picked up on when they did their first movies is that you write about what you know and you take stock of what you have in your inventory in in their case when robert made his first movie el mariachi you know he had a guitar he had a turtle he had a bus you know so he crafted his action movie kevin smith had the convenience store he worked on uh, in and obviously Emily Ting, she doesn't own Hong Kong, but she had Hong Kong as her story playground, and that's where she went for her first feature, which I think is uh, is wise to do. And then you start to see if that that can generate some art in this case. And uh, and I think they are really engaging, as you said, because a lot of it hinges on their chemistry and. Uh, you know, you wonder what the starting point is going to be. Are, are these characters going to be very cold towards each other from the beginning? Are they going to be mortal enemies that then turn romantic towards each other? And they don't really. Um, he is clearly frustrated. To uh, We don't know why, but we find out. Uh, and then he becomes helpful, but not in this sleazy, smarmy way. Like, hey, <laughs> I can take you to Lan Kwai Fung. But uh, she, they, they have a little sort of bite back and forth in the banter, but it's good-natured. Because she isn't a, a pushover necessarily, mm. and uh, they're, they're both the characters are both from the East Coast and West Coast, so there's they're some good na- in America. So there's some good natured sort of New York, LA banter, but they're not mortal enemies that then in 78 minutes are going to be turned around or anything. Uh, he is, he looks kind enough, and she picks up on that, and then off you go in, into the Hong Kong night. And uh, I want to ask you, sir, two things here. Uh, seeing hong kong here uh, does it make you miss it one and two are you ruining it for yourself by being annoyed at uh, geographical errors as they walk through the streets in hong kong like there would they would totally not be in that place that fast are you that kind of viewer no i to the first question yes absolutely i mean uh pretty much from the get-go once they once they meet and they are they they leave the area they're initially meeting at and are heading to another area um, the places they're walking, yeah, it just it brings me right back um, and makes me want to be right back. And they had really good fortune, too. She said one of the things in, in one interview, um, the director, Emily Ting, had said that weather was an issue. Um, and actually, there's uh, in, in one of the documentary featurettes on the film, um, they do the very traditional thing of, you know, that most Hong Kong productions will do. They have the roast pig sacrifice um, at the start of the production and they're praying for, you know, good weather. And then she said, as soon as they got to the first location, which was this like rooftop, rooftop restaurant setting, um, and 
it, it started to rain. <laughs> and she's like, well, screw these ceremonies. The prayers were kind of useless. But then um, the rain subsided. They had an, I think she said an amber rain alert. And, but the rain subsided and they actually got the shooting done. And so she then went back and said, oh, I guess it did work. And so um, that was all, that was all well and good. But um, I, you know, I wasn't paying too much attention to the narrative pacing in terms of where they were going and, uh, you know, the, the, the timing of it, but it seemed pretty accurate. And I remember her saying that when they were getting the permits for shooting that, you know, she had already kind of plotted out the ideas of the geography of where she wanted the, the, the walk to happen and where they would get to. Um, yeah, I, you know, there might be some timing issues in there there. I think there was a moment where I was kind of like questioning about it, but it's certainly nothing that I think, um, that most people would even consider. And I think in, even regular Hong Kong veterans would look at it and, and go, yeah, it's, it's just, it feels genuine. It feels accurate. It feels like a very sort of, um, honest portrayal of a part of Hong Kong, I would mm. say. Um, and if there is a bit of criticism that I do want to get into in a little bit, um, it's that it's still, it still has a particular perspective. Um, but I want to talk about that, um, maybe a little bit later. Um, as, as I mentioned, there are moments here derived from kind of her own experience. And you can see those moments if you watch the preview of her biographical documentary, Family Inc. Um, and it, sh but, you know, it does, it does, uh, borrow some aspects of films that we've seen before. So we've talked about, um, a many splendid thing. We've talked about Susie Wong and you have some parallels here. There's a Western male, Asian female. Um, you, you have that dynamic. That's a dynamic that's often criticized as, you know, it's always that dynamic, but this is her experience. So mm. I don't think it's fair to kind of throw shade at that, uh, in this particular case, this is her experience and she's putting that experience out there for the world to see. And she said yet yeah, that, you know, this is, this is what happened. She met, a Western guy one night and they had this kind of, you know, this walk and talk kind of night. Um, they, there's a meeting later on the star ferry. You know, we've, we saw that in <laughs> Susie Wong too. Um, but there is an interesting reversal here. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> there is an interesting reversal here because this time the character of Ruby is really sort of the outsider to Hong Kong and, you know, again, doesn't speak the local language, doesn't know her way around, really um, can't even, you know, navigate the streets without the, the use of her you know, phone, which doesn't have very good GPS. Um, so I, I think that switch, that reversal is kind of interesting because you have the foreigner character of Brian Green. Well, they're technically both foreigners, but the Brian Greenberg, uh, Josh character um, he's a Hong Kong resident. He's been living there for 10 years. He speaks a little bit of the language. He knows his way around. Um, and so that kind of reversal of the dynamic I found to be, um, kind of interesting and for me relatable as somebody who lived, you know, there for over a decade, uh, like the Josh character, having learned the language, being able to know my way around, you know, some of the streets. Um, I think it, you know, it was interesting to see, uh, Westerner portrayed in that kind of sense. Mm. Um, <clears throat> where I think I would draw some criticism for this, though, 
is that it feels very much like hipster Hong Kong. Hmm. Um, and, you know, it's it's an expat view of Hong Kong, which is still, it's not really a tourist view of Hong Kong, but it is a couple steps removed. Um, they Again, they tend to spend most of their time um, walking on Hong Kong Island. She's initially trying to get from one bar to uh, uh, Lang Kwai Fong. Again, very famous. That's where all the you expats... You remember your days in Lang Kwai Fong, Paul, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> my, my one day. I, I think I spent one night there. And that was enough. I, that's that's not. It for me. looked way too crowded for, me. for uh, my, my stress levels. Went off yeah. when 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 I saw that people are not in the effing bars partying. They're on the streets and like, oh uh, yeah, yeah. god, that's, that's um, you basically go in the bar, you get a drink, and then you go outside because it's just too noisy inside <laughs> the bar, and there's no room to sit usually. Um, so. And and it's just bar after bar after bar with a lot of the places like that. A couple of restaurants um, mixed in between, but nothing you'd really want to eat at no. because again, it's kind of touristy and overpriced. And and they reflect that in the movie, I think, very accurately. Um, that we, we, you know, we're old people, by the way, so yeah, don't take our word for it. Um, it's probably fun for you. Um, and, and you know, in terms of the soundtrack, they actually get the band Knots and X's in one scene where they're at this kind of in you know this kind of uh, hipster bar. I would say, you know, again, it's kind of catering to that expat or you know local who's kind of worldly traveled um, kind of group um, that's again primarily over on Hong Kong side. Um, it's it's a certain type of culture that's not indicative of Hong Kong culture. Hong Kong culture, you have very different cultures based on the geographical region that you are in. If you are somebody who spends your time in the new territories, that's not really... I mean, you can go and you can get into that world, um, but that's not going to be your normal everyday experience. If you're somebody who lives on Kowloon side, also very different experience, even though they did explore a little bit of Kowloon side when they went to some of the street markets and and she saw some of the toys Um, it's really a valid perspective you brought because it's not a perspective i can um, sort of uh, deconstruct because i haven't been so i don't know all the facets of hong kong yes i've watched these movies but they're not uh, instructional videos in terms of where you are now and uh, what that area is like it's it's hong kong movies man yeah Uh, so i i think that brings a valid perspective The, the strength of all of this is that the focus is still on them getting along as they're walking which is not inconceivable that when they realize that uh, we got a verbal thing going on here we got a quick back and forth going on here so i i never thought it was um too quickly sort of developed that day after a while after a drink or two feel comfortable uh, uh giving life advice to each other because they've been talking for quite a while so i think that's uh that, that can be a natural interaction between two people that just seem to get on and uh, because she gives him advice about uh, pursuing writing, which he hasn't, uh, he, he has a desire to um, to write a novel. That's where the title of the movie comes from. And I, I found that enjoyable. Uh, and the settings were necessarily the star in that case. They, they pop for sure, but um, they weren't necessarily the star. They, they, <laughs> it's gonna sound silly, but you know, the the settings that I connected to most were over sort of the, uh, the the theme of certain settings uh, uh, that I connected to were the fact that they were walking 
on stairs a lot and downstairs a lot. Yeah. And I, I just kind of found out, yeah, that, that's probably the geography in a nutshell. That it's all downhill. And uh, and these are mighty steps if you're going upstairs, up, up them, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. And I don't know why I found that charming as they walked. I, I simply did. So I found that was an enjoyable part of the scenery. We actually, uh, you know, before they even hit uh, Lang Kwai Fong and all of that, and uh, hit places like uh, these are the last uh, go- uh, gaslight uh, uh, lampposts in Hong Kong. They hit that spot. Uh, they're probably t- taking them down by now. Who knows? But uh, uh, and and within all of that, I think is uh, is a you know a romance that develops uh, quite nicely. It's far from a tropey. Uh, romance uh, as they uh, walk through the different environments and hit a lot of environments during their two rounds of uh, interaction because uh, one is one night and the other is a year later or or something like that but uh, the and the, the other thing i want to me- wanted to mention for for now we, we talked in this series about uh, old hong kong how it's gone at least this movie probably shows a hong kong that's still fairly present you know because it was shot in either 2015 or 2016 so they haven't redeveloped this that greatly so w- did, did you recognize it as yeah did this feels like the hong kong of today as you watched it or could you spot like it's gone through changes in two years well yes and no i mean it's still very i mean it's still very present in terms of the the places they go and you know again many of the places they go to uh, were not places that I would frequently haunt, especially when they're on Hong Kong side. But, you know, the escalator going up through Soho, the um, the big overpass bridges that they were on, that was all stuff that, um, you know, I was pretty readily familiar with for because uh, I was fortunate enough to work on Hong Kong Island, though I lived in the new territory. So I got to kind of see, um, you know, both of these two as different sides of Hong Kong. Um, but a lot of it's changed. I mean, even you, you mentioned the, the gas lamps over on um, Duddle Street in Central, um, which were there in 2016. But just this past year, they had Super super Typhoon uh, Mankut, and they were oh. damaged in that. So have, um, have they kept those for uh, throughout the years that they are going to be kept or they're just waiting to be uh, torn down by someone? No, they were. They, I think they've been declared a monument, and oh, okay. um, they were. You know, they're they're kind of there as, um, you know, iconic, traditional aspects of Hong Kong. But yeah, and I'm such can, a fool. Um, I'd want to visit that. I don't know what is what is with me, but that that charmed me for some reason. Like I want to see that. I want to take a photo of that. Like screw watching like like uh, uh, like Wai Fong, uh, like uh, Pulse or whatever. Like I want to see that. That seems calm and nice, and and uh, all of that. So relaxing. Yeah, I don't know if. Um, if they've been repaired or not, or I, I'm not sure, but I do know that yeah, there was some some pretty heavy damage um, after the super typhoon mm-hmm. um, to those to those lamps. So I'm guessing there will be some kind of restoration uh, if that's possible, because they, they were you know declared a uh, uh, you know sort of, sort of a if you can have a national monument in Hong Kong. Sure. Uh, but yeah, that so you know th- that's a thing that I think is. You know, one of the things we've talked about looking at these movies is, you know, especially the older movies, how Hong Kong has changed and and things like that. So with this, a very recent movie, um, it still feels so very familiar to me. But, yeah, I'm sure that there's stuff. I mean, there may be shops that, you know, they were passing 
on some of the street scenes that have already closed down because the rent's too dang high, right? Mm. I mean, um, that's, you know, and at, at the time of this, the big news at the time of this recording is, uh, you know, for film fans is that HMV is closing its doors. Mm. And if you're not familiar, HMV is like a major chain for selling movies and music out of, um, originally out of the UK. I guess the HMVs are kind of a separate subsidiary because from what I understand it, um, prices in the UK HMVs are fairly reasonable, but in the Hong Kong HMVs, they were skyrocket outrageous sometimes. Wow. Um, but you could find some decent deals in there uh, on occasion, and they did typically have a bigger and better selection of harder to find titles, especially in the, you know, the the celestial releases and the recent uh, legendary, you know, silver box release stuff. Um, for Hong Kong movies, they had probably one of the better selections of stuff that for, you know, that you could sometimes go in and find something that was pretty much out of print everywhere else. You know, nobody'd have it and they might have a copy or two hmm. that you could pick up. Um, it, the price would still be inflated, but nothing like you'd see on an eBay, right, these days. So, but it's sad that, you know, even something like that, a big sort of powerful chain can't find sustainability because of you know just the nature of rent in hong kong and so that doesn't bode well for <clears throat> many of the mom and pop shops that i used to go to hmm. have long since closed down and other industries are affected as well whether it's a you know small favorite restaurant or a certain kind of specialty store a lot of them are you know just coming and going um you know it, it would not be unfathomable to think that between the time that they shot this um, that a particular store that might have storefront that might have appeared in a scene has already gone through two different, um, you know, two different uh, owners in the past two years or renters, I would say, you know. So just to finish off my sort of basic notes and non-spoiler notes on on the romance, because there there, there is a chance that these two won't be able to get together because. Um, there are other elements in their lives, and they realize that. So the illusion breaks. They're very much swept away by how much of a great time they have. They don't do anything uh, that uh, you know sexually or anything. But um, I think uh, she plays those beats uh, well enough. She's a first-time director, so she treats it quite sim- simply. But romance beats, if you want to be convincing at them, you you need to be control of your narrative, and I think. She uh, she is, especially, as I said, as they are swept away by their connection and they realize, essentially, and they say it, what are we doing? And that that crops the discussion points, I think, between persons and couples between, uh, you know, after the movie, uh, you know, will they, won't they, should they, shouldn't they? And I, I, I think that's engaging enough because they are engaging as as actors. Uh, they brought that to the screen and there are mature enough stretches here. And although I know, and maybe we shouldn't touch on it that much, that n- not all viewers, you included, are that comfortable with the ending of the film. But personally, I think I was very much fine with it. Uh, I Because I enjoyed them very much throughout these 75 minutes and then credits. And to leave leave things a little bit open, I was very much okay with. But I, I'm not saying that it's critics proof or anything. Uh, they've They've touched on the flaws of what they've been doing uh, together, uh, but also flaws in their own respective relationships and that they might need to reconsider things. And that's 
perfectly mature and perfectly uh, engaging, uh, not to the point where it talks talks at you and leaves you leaves this movie with you for days and days and days on end. But uh, yeah, I think it was wise not to fast track yeah, the developments in 75 minutes. Uh, but they they stop at a certain point, and I was personally fine with it. But I'm not saying that it in actuality is fine because I, I think it is open to criticism. Uh, but I'll I'll leave it at that. Um, for now, and um, maybe you want to mention them something about that, or maybe some cameos or whatever. So, uh, the, I'll, I'll throw, throw it over to you. Yeah, <clears throat> well, again, I not to spoil too much on the ending, uh, but I it is a bit ambiguous by design. Um, they actually shot a couple alternative endings, which don't really help <laughs> all that much, <laughs> I would say. Um, Though they do kind of point in, a, you know, a couple of different directions, depending on which one you see. Um, I just, I for me, there are a couple things that feel a little bit like film school 101, I would say. Um, and, and you know, I, one of the things that she does, uh, Director Ting does in this is a lot of sort of undercranked or time-lapse shots of Hong Kong as a cityscape where, mm. you know, people are moving quickly and the traffic's moving quickly and, oh, it's a busy, bustling city. Um, and it's very film school-esque. It's, it's something that I've seen film students do time and time again when they're trying to tell a Hong Kong story. Yes, we get it. You know, Hong Kong is a busy, bustling city. Um, and that's a tried-and-true technique, but it's also way overused, I think. Um, it's not used bad in, 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 in a poor fashion, I would say. Um, you know, it is effective. She does, what she does shoot of the cityscape is charming. It's enchanting. It sets the mood for what she's trying to do, which is, you know, Hong Kong as this city of romance. But by the same token, it's also, you know, um, especially when you get some of um, Timo Chen's uh, you know, kind of synthy, poppy, techno instrumental music at times. You know, it, it just, it feels like you've seen this before in other films um, that are showing Hong Kong as sort of the busy, bustling city. So to throw that ending on there too, it's just like, I don't know, it, it doesn't work for me as well. I know what they're going for, and a lot of films do that. They go for that by, you know, kind of, and cut roll credits and you know but i for me it just feels like old hat it's like tell a story or don't you know if you end on a moment of tension it's just a trick for the audience you know to make them you know i know you want to make them wonder but at the same time you know this is again a case of basing it on a, a real thing that happened there's a resolution to that right i mean there was there was a thing and you know Maybe she felt that, that the resolution wasn't as interesting or didn't want to tell the resolution. But for me, I think narratively, um, it just f falls a little short. It doesn't make it a bad movie. I mean, I really enjoy the film. It just is one of those things that kind of, you know, irritates me in the back of my mind. It's like, you know, you're not finished. Finish, finish the movie. Finish the story. Like, you know, it's, it's like only seventy-eight minutes. You, you, you have my attention for five more minutes. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's still, it's still, it, it, it doesn't take away from the performances or even her direction 
um, overall. It's just for for me, it's a a little bit of a pet peeve. You know, it's something that directors do. You know, and and a lot of directors do it. Okay, uh, Love and Time uh, from Hong Kong, Fire Lee. I'm looking at you. Right, it's one of the worst movie endings ever. Um, and it remains to be so. So, uh, you know, and, and that's a Steffi movie, and it's hard for me to be mad at a Steffi <laughs> movie, but I'm mad at that movie because of that ending. So, you know, uh, just don't do it. Is you know, I, I'm teasing. You know, I think for a lot of the audience out there, it will work fine. Um, and it, you know, again, it's 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 a thing that's in the moment, and you kind of feel it coming. I felt it coming at least, and then when it happened, I was just like, oh, okay. But I think it for. A lot of other people, they'll think it's great, you know, and it, it works just just as well. Yeah, I kind of dug that they um, took a stance as characters and uh, stepped away from the uh, sparkly illusion that they were in. I think I registered that and appreciated that uh, that they didn't do any huge, uh, you know, the, the morals uh, and judgment they didn't, didn't took and take a nose dive or anything which i i, I think that carried me all through these these you know, epic 78 in, minutes in another genre you know in a category three genre charlie cho would have been the taxi driver and they would have all ended up <laughs> in some room somewhere with uh you know soft Van- vaseline vanilla. lighting and stuff and yeah. oh not even that with like <laughs> vanilla beige walls no art on the uh, no thought on no art on the walls and just right. go yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I nitpick here and I think, you know, again, pet peeve of mine, but it works fine for the context of the film as a whole. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned, she does, you know, she is kind of in the hipster culture side of Hong Kong. And I know that's probably an unfair term to use, but, um, with but the, a, lot, anyway. a lot of the music, the soundtrack, you know, she does tap, as I said, knots and X's actually is in the film in, in one scene and they have a couple of uh, songs uh, that are on the soundtrack uh, or in the film's listing of the soundtrack. There is a soundtrack for this film, and it's mostly the tracks from composer Timo Chen, and they have one of the more popular tracks, tracks from Knots and X's, but there's a lot of other music imbued throughout this, um, including more Hong Kong indie music. One of my favorite groups called uh, My Little Airport has a couple songs, including the an in- initial song that kind of runs through the 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 credit scene um you say um, you're not into music a lot and yet you talk a lot about how much you love music i, uh, and you know, is, I, I, don't, I don't know, know how to music. read you sometimes uh, <laughs> I, I don't know music okay i mean i well, listen to music there are songs that i like there are groups that i like um but you know some people are like you know they just know bands they you know uh, david harris right is somebody that i would point to he's a music guy you know, he knows who bands are. He knows band members' names. And, you know, he's all into the, the the sort of music side of things. I could never consider myself a music guy. I like listening to soundtrack music. Um, there are some, you know, singers and some groups that I like to listen to on occasion. But usually it's because they're involved with a movie in one some way, shape, or form, right? Mm. So that will get me interested and into um, some of the stuff they do or they're involved in some kind of stage production work or or things like that. I'm not somebody who's like, oh, you know, the latest uh, Ariana Grande song has just dropped and I have to go listen to it, right? Because I, I don't follow like pop music or even, you know, bands that I like may release an album and I may not know about it for 
a, a year or two because I just I'm not somebody who's always listening to music. It has to pop up on my radar through, you know, some other means. I would say. Mm, fair enough. Um, yeah. So that's you know. You know what you like. Yes, indeed. That's good. Indeed. Uh, um, so, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, so yeah, you know, she's kind of tapped into that sort of indie culture, which works well because this is again an indie film, um, which I think is interesting because as I looked on um, looked up some of the work that's coming for the director uh, Emily Ting, she has a film that's in production. Uh, I believe it's called uh, "Go Back to China." is is the working title of it now, and it's about a uh, an heiress to a toy to a toy empire who blows her family's trust fund and has to go back to to China to work for a job, okay. which also sounds a little bit autobiographical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she you know? did what uh, the character Ruby uh, did, yeah. if I understood things correctly. She she designed uh, like yeah. uh, toys, teddy bears. Well, her father—that's like the basis of her Family Inc. documentary. It's her going to work for her father. Um, and this is when she spent time in Hong Kong, um, which is sort of the source material for this film, where she was going to work for his toy company, um, which I guess is mostly the manufacturing based in China. Um, but, you know, they do stuff in Hong Kong. So that's part of the reason why she was based in Hong Kong. And as I understand it, uh, and I could be wrong, but from interviews that I've gleaned, the funding for this movie was pretty much self-funded. So... I'm, okay. wonder, I'm wondering if she, if she is uh, yeah, again basing this next film on her the experience of her blowing her family fortune on <laughs> for making this film and now having to go back to uh, to uh, why couldn't you have made it at least twice as long yeah. and made money? No, 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 no. Oh, it looks yeah. di- it looks dynamite though. And uh, what, you know, what one thing I admire is that uh, they they got as much good sound uh, out of this as they did, or slash really professional additional dialogue recording because yes, yeah. because that, you know as they walk through people and places the dialogue is crystal clear man no and and she does talk about the challenges of shooting in hong kong um obviously they're shooting probably really early mornings in some places where traffic is not that big of an issue but even so she said with a walk and talk movie like this what you have is you have sometimes you know the cameraman out there with a steady cam on the street and they, you know, you're walking and the characters are acting for a pretty solid two to three minutes. And she'd say sometimes they get, you know, two minutes in and then some drunk expat guy would pop up and yell, hi, mom, or something. And, <laughs> you know, they'd have to they'd have to start over um, because she said even though they had permits, they didn't have the budget for extras or a lot of uh, people flow control, you know, that kind of stuff. So pretty much everybody you see on the street they're just there they're not part of the actual production um, which yeah. is a, which is a, a good testament because you know a lot of hong kong films that we can talk about go through this and you can very clearly just see people stopped and staring <laughs> you know yeah, look, at what's going look at on Leslie, look at andy yeah and so she said you know obviously you have the luxury of of brian greenberg and jamie chung who probably i mean jamie might be recognizable but even so, not that much, and and Brian Greenberg. So they just kind of blended in, and she said they used long camera lenses so they could shoot close up, but from like a far distance across the street, so they wouldn't draw that much attention to the people on the street. So really well planned, I think, in terms of 
how they utilized um, the space and how they shot and filmed in Hong Kong, because that's not an easy process, even if you're doing it in the wee wee hours of the morning. Um, and it's not like it's pure documentary in style either, just because they had to do this. Like it's a very clean looking and stable, professional looking movie uh, with, with only occasional uh, extras looking in, or not even extras, people looking looking into the camera. But uh, it's uh, it's not like they needed to have a shaky cam style just because that's the only way they're going to capture it before before yeah. it goes uh, goes wrong so they're very clean looking and stylish moving that regard and the colors pop as i said so uh, yeah and it's a good pacing too between them walking from point a to point b and then spending some time at point b which is usually some you know uh internal place real places you know they shot in real bars and and places uh that gave some exposure to those places and then moving on from point b again traveling a bit to point c and you know same kind of thing there's a there's a pretty great scene in, inside of a bus where they're talking there's a mm-hmm. later scene inside of a taxi um, and these are all well done they i think they help to break up the pacing of the film you know so that you know it might start to feel okay they've been on the street a little bit too long and you know now they're going to be in a more static environment for a little bit and then okay they're back moving again so uh i think that part of it 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 again is a testament to the director and going for the kind of tone and the kind of pacing that she was looking for to tell this story because it's very easy to get that mix incorrect i think yeah for sure i mean i mean it's not um, a stage play this, despite me talking of a uh, micro movie, uh, spa settings or anything, so it's not like it's all all on the bus or all in the bar. But she she really switches it up. You're right; uh, it never feels uh, static for very long. Well, that's pretty much it for my notes on the film itself. Um, we'll talk about availability in just a minute, but let me throw back over to Kenny B and your final thoughts. I, I do recommend it because it's so easy to get through. And uh, if you're a fan of uh, dialogue-heavy movies uh, without it being specialized dialogue and theatrical dialogue, yeah, go for it. But And it's also a perfectly sweet and uh, digestible romance uh, set in uh, Hong Kong that uh, seems well represented enough, even though Paul thought it focused on areas that uh, might uh, might be uh, not not fully representative of Hong Kong, but not in a purely bad way. But uh, do, do, do get it. It's 78 minutes, pretty easy. It's not uh, independent filmmaking that uh, is going for this... Uh, sort of in, in it doesn't reinvent and it doesn't want to reinvent romance just because it's indie or anything and heck you get some hong kong cameos but uh i'll leave that to paul to to discuss if he likes because uh, there there's three people listed in the cast list for a reason in at the top of the movie because uh there's no one else in it other than people <laughs> <laughs> other well, <than> people <laughs> but what what is what is the big sort of known cameo that's it's not really a spoiler if you look at the cast list yeah, you were waiting for it. Like, who is Richard Ng going to play? Are they going to meet her father or something like that? No, he plays a little kooky old uh, fortune-telling, uh, fortune-telling uh, man. And uh, no, not kooky in a way where they like degrade Richard's uh, comedic chops or his, uh, his depiction as, as, as a Hong Kong person. But, uh, you know, he, he does uh, face reading and uh, palm reading or and whatever the technique using the bird uh, is called a table reading the bird that picks up the card and then you pay him 20 bucks or whatever but uh that's his little sit sitting down cameo and uh why not because uh, richard's uh, english is uh, obviously impeccable so he can do that and uh it's a fun little um 
cameo, although although it's uh, meant to forward the romance a little bit. You can't really complain because it's uh, Richard and he's uh, he's given off a vibe that he's uh, happy to be there for for the hour it took or whatever. Yeah, and he's actually um, he's actually if you look at the featurette on the making of, he's actually at the sort of opening ceremony as well. Um, when they do the, you know, the start of the film prayer and everything. And it's great to see him. It looks like, you know, he's just doing what he does uh, so very naturally. He's, you know, I mean, he's not, it's not old Richard where he's like hiding body parts with uh, pots and pans and, and being naked. Um, that It's not that Richard, but it's still, you, you get the sense that he's actually happy to be part of the production and he, he's... Uh, you know, just jo- his jovial old self for the most part and in terms of this character. But the interesting thing is what how he kind of got cast. Uh, the director talked about she, her producer, had a connection because uh, she was just going to cast one of the actual fortune tellers, um, I guess from Temple Street or, or one of these places. And her producer said, no, 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 you, you don't want to do that because they're not going to be able to act well and it'll be a bit you know, it, it'll be a bit off-putting with putting them with, you know, Jamie and Brian because, you know, they're actors and and the person that you get may not, you know, be up to that level in terms of uh, putting forth a performance. So he said the, the producer knew the daughter, Richard M's daughter, and so through her they were able to contact Richard and get him to read the script, and he was happy to come on board and do it. Um, and she said, you never, that, "You never know, by the way, where Richard uh, resides these days, because I think he goes back between like UK and Hong Kong yeah. uh, every now and again. So thank God he was in Hong Kong, though." Yeah, and he, she said that um, when she initially met director Ting, initially met with him, it was like a three-hour meeting, <laughs> and she said he wasn't <laughs> even on set for that scene for that long because he wanted, you know, he was like coming up with all this backstory for the guy. Yeah. And, you know, all Can I get details. naked at any point? Is that possible? No, and she said, you know, he was just super great and super enthusiastic. And um, it's always fun, you know, to see him pop up and stuff like this. And I, you know, I I know that he's probably enjoying his retirement and he probably doesn't necessarily want to take on big full-on productions anymore. Uh, but small stuff like this, it's great. I know that um, one of the films that I was considering talking about for this series and may come up in a later series is uh, the film Super Capitalism, where he has a pretty sizable role for in that, um, and also uh, Kenneth Tsang, um, who's a uh, you know one of these actors who pops up in foreign films from time to time, as well. Uh, but it was great to see him here. Uh, a couple other mentions you want to make mention of, Ken? Well, be, only because I saw it in the credits as they were rolling. Wait, 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 wait! Taxi Driver. It said uh, Po Chilung. Which is, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Lung Pochi, I believe, is the real, um, real order of uh, the name that you, uh, how you pronounce it. And I was like, that's the name of a director I know. Rewind. Oh, holy hell! It is Lung Pochi, the director of the Chinese fat movie Hong Kong 1941, the director of the gangster movie um, Shanghai 1920. He did a he did a murder mystery comedy called He Lives by Night. He's worked with Jude Law, The Wisdom of Crocodiles. It's a vampire movie. He's done a Steven Seagal film or two. Um, sometime between 2000 and 2010 and uh, it has also been an international director to a degree and uh, educated abroad and uh, and somehow they got to Lung Po Chi to play the um, taxi driver which was just fun to see 
And yeah. you, I, I don't know how much he hovers over the movie industry, but clearly Emily got to him and had a connection in some shape or form. Even knew about knew about him. Who who knows? But yeah. uh, that's a little cameo from uh, Lung Pochi. Right. So yeah, some some good stuff to look forward to, and some welcome, you know, Hong Kong faces in this series of films where we haven't seen a whole lot of you know Hong Kong faces over the course of the different films that we've looked at. Um, it's it's really primarily the, the Chinese box, I suppose, uh, you know, the big, big yeah, ones, yeah. you know, and some cameos and things. In terms of availability, uh, so this is fairly re- readily available. It was on streaming platforms first, though I, there is some physical media available now, um, but sadly no Laserdisc version um, as yet. Maybe I'm, up. Change I'm up, I'm up, I'm up. Screw off. Um, but yeah, it is available on iTunes, um, although I cannot tell you the price on iTunes anymore. One of the things I hate about iTunes is when I purchase something on iTunes, it no longer shows me how yeah. much it costs. And even I if I want to gift it to somebody, like, you know, I'll, I'll press the gift button and it won't come up with a price. It's it's very annoying. Um, so, you know, fix that, iTunes. Uh, that, that's just a bad feature. Um, but uh, the Amazon digital version, um, you've got a couple options. It is on Prime right now, which means if you have Amazon Prime US, uh, you can watch it based on your Prime subscription. Or you can purchase it outright for the low, low price of $6.99. The one reason why I would recommend the iTunes version over the Prime version is if you want to get the special features. Now, they're not extensive. Um, they are basically two short featurettes on the making of... Um, which shows, again, it shows some of the behind-the-scenes footage. It shows, um, uh, you know, them doing kind of the opening ceremony and uh, a few interviews with uh, the leads, um, but nothing extensive, I think. Between the two of them, it's about uh, maybe about 15 minutes in total of uh, footage. Um, there's uh, so, there's some photos on there uh, as well, but it, at least it's something that's there. They also I've heard have... there's, um, I've heard, uh, pardon me, uh, two things. I've heard there's a commentary on at least one of the disc versions. Yeah. And two, uh, it's six ninety nine on iTunes as well. Okay, so same price on iTunes. I'd say if you can get that, go for that version because Amazon does not seem to have the special features, um, which is sort of the downside if you're a heavy Amazon user. Uh, I don't know why. You know, I know that for some of their releases, um, like the Disney stuff, usually they will tack that you can buy two versions. You can buy a non-feature version or a feature version, and they'll be the same price. The feature version just tacks on all the special features at the end. There's no ability to select them separately. So you'll have, mm. you know, like if you buy one of the Marvel movies where it's a two-hour movie, it'll be two hour and 30 minutes or three hours because they tack on all the, the special stuff at the end, and you just That's have to That's simply not convenient and modern at all. So yeah. I don't, don't know what they're thinking there, but hey, we did, we display our price even if you bought it, so screw yeah. you, iTunes. <laughs> um, whereas with the iTunes versions, um, they usually have it as a separate kind of download. They have it sometimes integrated. in. So in the case of this movie, there's, a, there's like a menu bar at the bottom that you can select from um, to go to see, you know, some of the special features. Um, one of the other special features the iTunes version has here is, uh, I think it's two or three alternative endings um, to the film. And they say right at the front that the way the film ends is how they intended the film to end. Um, that was that was the film that they were going for. But because they knew that a lot of times when you make a movie, it doesn't always play well with audiences, they did shoot 
some alternative endings in the event that they felt the audience reception was going to be, um, you know, particularly negative in because of the ending. So there are, uh, as I said, I think like three alternative endings that kind of lead in slightly different directions depending on how you read them. Um, but they're nothing extensive. It's basically, you know, about 10 to 30 seconds of add-on to the, the, the scene that exists. Um, mm. uh, and so, again, that's there as part of the special features on the iTunes version. I would assume those are on um, the physical versions as well. There's a DVD that runs around the $19 mark right now available on Amazon. There's a Blu-ray that's around the $27 mark at the time of this recording. And that is said to list an audio commentary from the director. And that is not an option on the iTunes version, which is unfortunate because I would have liked to have gone through and and listened to that. $27 as a price point is a little bit pricey for me for the length of the movie, um, considering I already have it on digital. Um, but if I can find a used version at some point um, for a slightly cheaper price, I would like to get a hold of it just to hear that commentary. Um, so yeah, you've got a range of options right now, and uh, I'd say that especially at the six ninety nine price point, more than worth it for this film. If you've liked any of the films in this series, especially the sub series on you know uh, Love Hong Kong style, again I think this is something that fits in with some of the themes that we've looked at, um, with them using Hong Kong as kind of sort of this exotic romantic location especially for people coming from the outside into hong kong and establishing a relationship and also showing off some of the um more significant geographical features of hong kong in these different eras so definitely something that i think would be worth your time and money to check out all right i think that's wrapping it up for this series that we've done uh originally started out to be a nine episode series but unfortunately only eight episodes because i still haven't been able to dig out um the uh third film that i wanted to do for the hong kong hijinks sections but one of these days when i unbox uh that box and that thing falls in my lap uh, we'll get back to that <laughs> one for sure because that's one i think we can talk about as well but i thought we'd end this series by bringing it back to hong kong for a little bit and this is a little bit spur of the moment cuz i didn't give kenneth much notice on this but he is an encyclopedia of knowledge when it comes to hong kong <laughs> film and not you, on the spot if not you don't spot. if you don't believe me just go look up his reviews over at so good reviews every time i come across like some obscure hong kong film um that falls into my lap and i'm thinking i bet I bet Kenneth hasn't reviewed this one. And then I go check on So Good Reviews, and actually he already has. So, and he already um, has forgotten about it because his memory <laughs> is going as well. Yes, as, 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 as is all of ours. But um, yeah, I wanted to bring it back to Hong Kong a little bit and talk about each of these sub-series. So if you're a fan, if you've liked listening to this series, and you're still kind of new to Hong Kong cinema, or you'd like some direction on some films that fall in these categories that we've been talking about, um, I thought I'd throw out a couple recommendations. So we started off talking about Colonial Hong Kong and looking at films like, you know, Taipan and Noble House, the two sort of James Clavell big epic novels about the founding of Hong Kong and its existence as a colonial power and then sort of wrapping that up with Wayne Wang's Chinese box, which brings us up to the 97 handover and sort of the end of that colonial period. Um, two films that pop in my mind, and again, this isn't an area that's had 
super extensive coverage, especially, I mean, there are some other films out there, but availability is very scarce for some of them. Um, but one that comes to mind is the 1997 film called The Opium War, um, which is pretty much uh, a mainland Chinese look at this same sort of period around in and around the Taipan setting. Um, it's talking about uh, some of the same characters, um, historic, but also having some narrative thrown in. And it's, uh, I, you know, it's not a super exciting film as, as these films go, but it is one that I think presents an alternative perspective, you know, on the era uh, that, that, you know, Hong Kong was founded in. And if you can find it, uh, it's, it's worth tracking down and watching, especially if you're somebody who's a little bit more interested in films that are focused on, you know, the history of, of events and things like that. So you can check out uh, the 1997 film, The Opium War, and uh, you can find that over on the Hong Kong Movie Database. And they have an image there of, of what it looks like. And um, when I was in Hong Kong, it was pretty readily available in a lot of shops. I don't know. It might be a bit more scarce now, but you should be able to track it down um, through secondary sources. The second film that came to my mind is one that I've actually talked with Kenneth before on our old program. I think it was on the Dynasty Report um, where we talked about it with uh, Dr. David Lamb. And that is Floating City from 2012, an Aaron Kwok vehicle, if you will, um, where he kind of, uh, you know, it, it, I wouldn't say it's exactly comparable to Noble House, but he kind of plays this uh, young Chinese character who works his way into some uh, colonial, you know, uh, powerhouses of the time. Um, not exactly an Ian Dunross type of character, but somebody who's able to move between both worlds. Um, and it kind of, again, shows Hong Kong under the, you know, sort of the prime era of the business and colonial side of things in the modern era. Um, and it's uh, for... You know, I'm not a huge Aaron Kwok fan, but it's one that's always kind of stuck out what? in my mind as something that I've really enjoyed. <laughs> no. <laughs> my ears poked up. Not a huge Aaron Kwok fan. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, if, if I have to go with the the order of the four heavenly kings, um, he's number three. So Fair enough. Sorry. And and, Le and Leon is four or five yeah. or whatever. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, how about you, sir? Does, I mean, is there anything that you've come across over the years that uh, you think... Uh, fits in the air. I mean, there's a lot of stuff I know for TV dramas and stuff that you could, um, one could point back to, but a lot of it, again, is not going to be uh, subtitle friendly in some cases or availability is an issue. For sure. I mean, uh, as Paul said, I literally knew about this a few minutes before recording. So if I, I've said in the series before that I'm not a history buff, so I get my history confused and you know, no, I'm simply not knowledgeable, knowledgeable about it. But I suppose little sprinkles here and there of uh, colonial Hong Kong and certainly history leading up to 1997 could be found in movies like Once Upon a Time in China 1 and 2. Yep. Uh, certainly in the second one because it brings up, uh, um, if, I'm not if I'm not mistaken, it's been a while and it's out now on a spiffy new Blu-ray set in the UK. But uh, it's it's all about the forming of, uh, of the Republic 
like uh, in that one that, that or, or China in yeah. uh, um, you know I, again I, I can't talk of this with authority because I, I simply can't but it, it, it's a driving force of uh, the plot in the second one but certainly the Western influence in uh, in general you know kung fu versus guns in the first one becomes rather poignant it's it's all good on the flip side I'm sure you can find sprinkles of this in Project A. Uh, because of the setting, so you can have a fun time with um, uh, with that. Again, might not be the most appropriate sort of thematic choice, but Project A came to mind. And I, I was wondering, did you ever see the, the Lord of East China Sea movies with Ray Loy? I never did because the prints I had were not very good. The subtitles were very, very fuzzy. So a big historical epic like that, you know, I waited for a better version and never got a better version. So do you remember watching those uh, Lord of East China Sea movies? Uh, I, I have them. I think they've since left, left, left my memory, um, I think I may have a, a laser disc version of that. If memory serves, I'd have to check my uh, my my database. But um, yeah, I mean those those are out there, and it, there again, there's a lot of stuff that touches on the colonial era. And I think uh, the, probably the Once Upon a Time of China series, especially the first one, is really uh, indicative of that. You know, because you do have um, you know it's it's about basically the not just the trading of opium but i think uh one of the big plot points of that one is that they're trading um women you know so yes uh, yes you know that that's you know something that happened it's not a good point in history it's 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 a it's a blemish to be sure but um it makes for interesting storytelling i mean and if you're gonna go up to the 1997 handover and if i'm just gonna throw out something uh, spontaneous it doesn't hurt to go back to Infernal Affairs 1, 2, and 3, and especially 2, because they make the handover really well-conceived and developed dramatic beat within Infernal Affairs 2, which is uh, the prequel, as these characters go through that transition. I, mean, I think it really, they, they interconnect very well, despite being very uh, very operatic told movie by that point but i mean uh, the eric tsang scenes are really memorable in terms of um, in terms of that uh, as he mourns what he mourns during 1997 it's more than just hong kong and then needs to put on a brave face and entertain his guests because it's the 1997 party mm. always remember that as being um, very memorable and eric tsang just crushing it uh romance style i suppose um i mean i, I like when hong kong movies go abroad so you gotta watch an autumn's tale for that. Go go, go see uh, Chai Fat and Cherry Chung have uh, the best Hong Kong romance ever. But in New York, it's my favorite Hong Kong movie, so I'll, I'll recommend it regardless if it makes sense, makes sense or not. Uh, and if you want to watch uh, the depressing part of that, I think it's uh, partly set in New York, but I might be wrong. Uh, uh, it is set abroad to a point. The Maggie Chung Tony Leung Kafai movie, Farewell China, super depressing. But it's a good movie. It's a critically acclaimed movie, sync sound, directed by Clara Law. And uh, it goes for the gut in terms of, we're gonna punish ya hard. <laughs> uh, but it's a good movie called Farewell China. So um, in terms of hijinks, I mean, as you wrote in your notes, like good luck finding something off the top of your head that's to recommend because you can recommend for 10 more parts in this podcast series. So, uh, so I'll... I'll, I'll I simply don't. Just uh, find some Stephen Chow movies and have uh, have some good fun, and hopefully some uh, connected uh, sort of string to this series is available in 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 those finds or in Paul's recommendations that he might have ready for you now. Yeah, I mean, it's it, there's just really too many to mention because so much of Hong Kong cinema is based in 
part on, you know, comedy. And I mean, you could look at things like the Aces Go Places films, which you've covered on Podcast on Fire as a kind of hijinks, even though they're, you know, a bit more in sort of the hijinks slash spy cop genre. Um, you've got the Chasing Girls films, you know, which made Wang Jing somewhat famous and a lot of other people, you know, Romancing Star, How to Pick Up Girls, that kind of stuff. You know, is that hijinks? Is that romance? Is it somewhere in between? Um, Fooling. Fooling. (laughs) Adventures (laughs) in fooling, right? Um, But for me, the ones, you know, Kenneth mentioned Stephen Chow. He's probably a go-to source, although he may be, you know, depending on what you go to, he may be a bit too heady in some of his films for a newbie, really. I mean, he might you, you might not want to start off necessarily with um, some Stephen Chow films. But I was thinking of things like the tricky genre, which kind of came out in the early and ran through to the mid, even into the late 90s, although it kind of had worn out its, its uh, genre status by that point. But um, starting off with things like Magnificent Scoundrels, which is a Stephen Chow uh, vehicle uh, along with uh, you know a lot of other people, Amy Yip and, and some other people. Um, pretty fun cast, I think Sandra. Mm. And they basically are going about you know setting up these big cons, but like really elaborate kind of insane cons. And then this goes into overdrive with the tricky films, uh, with like tricky brains. I thought, think also in the same year with um, Stephen Chow and Andy Lau, and then tricky business a few years later with I want to say. Anita Yun and Lao Ching Wan, if memory serves. Um, those are all personal faves of mine and things, and just really kind of wacky, zany stuff. Um, you know, if you like kind of almost super comic book style hijinks, that kind of stuff, um, which I, which in some ways for me was what I was reminded of in the film Up to His Ears, you know, sort of like um, that that kind of comedy, a lot of physical comedy, things of that nature. Um, for the Love Hong Kong style, again, I'd have to throw props back to Jenny for reminding us of Comrades, almost a love story. Mm-hmm. Um, again, looking at, you know, immigrants who had come to Hong Kong and sort of discovering each other and discovering the city. Um, so some, again, very reflective themes. And uh, with the William Holden connection, it makes it very, very relevant for this series in general. A personal favorite of mine for this sort of um, 1980s, 90s era um, D&B films, uh, romantic comedy, which really kind of captured my attention back in the era, is called Happy Together. This is not the Happy Together that you all probably know and love. The Tony Leung, Leslie Chung Happy Together from Wong Kar Wai. No, this is the 1989 Happy Together starring Kenny B. But the other Kenny B, not the Kenny B who's here. <laughs> um, and also with Cherry Chung. Uh, she plays... Um, a sort of no-nonsense reporter and he's a guy who a businessman who they you know just they cross paths i think this film was one of vivian chow's uh, early introductions as well um as sort of a girl next door and just really a just a sort of a charming urban comedy that i think it doesn't reinvent the genre but it also it's when i think of comedies in the city it's and romance, it's one that I often return to. And, you know, too many Andy Lau films to mention. I mean, because it's like every second or third Andy Lau film is going to be, um, you know, a romance film of some sort, especially when you go back to some of his earlier work. Um, but the one that I often return to because it's just crazy, silly fun is Dances with Dragon. 
which is basically a Cinderella story with him as Prince Charming and uh, Charlotte Chung as the, the kind of Cinderella. Um, and it's, you know, it's fun, it's engaging, and it's, it's if, you're, if you don't mind the sort of retelling of it. And I think it's a little bit of the, um, what, what's the Goldie Hawn film? Is it Overboard where she... Yes, she falls off, and they then they try to make make her believe that she's actually a part of their family. It's borrowing a lot of elements heavily from that too. Um, so yeah, and it's just one that's um, always been a fan, a personal fan favorite of mine. So you can check that one out. And and I think for most of these, availability um, is pretty you know easy to come by, especially with Comrades, which has gotten a re-release recently. Um, Happy Together, I think, was re-released in the Legendary Collection, but it, that might be a bit harder to come by. But Dances with Dragon got a Fortune Star, I think it's Fortune Star, Blu-ray release a few years back. So availability for that should be um, easy to come by. I think Magnificent Scoundrels is probably one of the harder ones to come by because I think uh, that one is long out of print and I don't think that's gotten a decent reissue in recent years, which is mm. which is a shame. Um, but yeah, I wanted to kind of, you know, again, touch back on these themes that we've been working on through this series and bring it back to Hong Kong. So for those of you who've been listening, who don't have, a, you know, a big encyclopedic knowledge of Hong Kong cinema, and you're looking for some areas and some directions, uh, to go into that are relevant to these themes, these are just some ideas. Again, there are probably lots more out there that you can explore. And if you have some that you think we should mention, you know, feel free to drop us a line and share them with us as well. Any final thoughts, sir? Nothing other than excellent recommendations. And uh, thank you for so carefully and in such a constructive manner putting together a themed series like this. It creates a thread that's very much approachable and understandable. And listeners, I think, you know, it doesn't become overwhelming because you have you slotted it into very distinctive categories. You know, three movies covers this, two movies covers this, and three movies covers this particular theme. So, you, props to you, Paul, for putting it together the way you did, and uh, for God's sake, give yourself some some uh, props for uh, for doing that and following through, and then uh, initiate something new, uh, new and creative that's that's near and dear to your heart because clearly this is you know there's themes here that are not terribly far removed from from you personally you know having lived in hong kong for one you know speaking of the movie we talked of uh, tonight so it's it was nice to see that you uh, that you came up with this and uh, in the way that you structured it as uh, very much approachable and enjoyable to do well thank you sir and thank you for being a part of this journey um <clears throat> it's been uh you know, eye-opening, and I think that your perspectives have brought a lot to the table, too. Um, many ideas that I myself may not have even considered on watching these films, um, you know, some which I've seen multiple times, some which are, you know, uh, new watches for me as I constructed this series. So we well, hope... Well, well, the main, well, the main observation for this one is uh, that Ken likes lamps. <laughs> I like lamp. I'm going to Hong Kong and I look at the lamps. <laughs> And the staircases, those were fun. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Kongcast.com for more.
Well, you have been listening to Hollywood on Hong Kong, a subseries of the East Green West Green podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jubor, Snowser Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. Uh, again, big thanks to Jenny for writing in and uh, you know filling us in on the Comrades Almost a Love Story link. And if you would like to be part of the show too, you can get with us, uh, get in touch with us via our website at concast.com or over on Twitter at concast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com and you can find us on Facebook at East S West S. As always, I would urge you to please follow along with my very wonderful co-host and all the work that he does across multiple channels in the empire that is known uh, as the Podcast on Fire Network, Mr. It. Kenny B. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? And, you know, what can people expect in 2019? Well, uh, the building of an empire, is, if, if, if there is such an ongoing uh, construction going, it's going slow, <laughs> slow. And so someone isn't aware of it either. So uh, that's, that's, that's being help, helpful towards our world domination. But anyway, we are on podcastonfire.com as, uh, as well as on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to us on iTunes, therefore, stream us on Stitcher Radio and a variety of other pod uh, catchers. As for 2019, uh, I, I'm guessing this is going to come out uh, early in the year. So it's not uh, July as you're listening to this. I uh, hope uh, because that's how I would, I would I do it. I sit on shows for a while. No, but uh, I'm working on uh, concluding a, a Japan on Fire series that's been ongoing for quite a while on uh, filmmaker Hideo Gosha, director of Sword of the Beast and Free Outlaw Samurai. It's just been a matter of uh, my prior co-host has not been able to commit to it, and that's understandable. But uh, I have uh, quite an expert on the filmmaker lined up to con- conclude that series, and then I'm going to take it into anime territory because um, people seem to have requested that. They know I watch a lot of messed up anime, so they want to hear about it too. So, <laughs> uh, And I'm also working on a, a new interview currently, uh, doing some rewatches of um, of uh, movies that this particular Western uh, stunt performer and actor has, has been in. So, uh, but it's all uh, unrecorded currently, and um, we uh, it's gonna happen sometime in 2019. Some some new endeavors and some new creative challenges, and uh, happy to do it and deliver it to you. Well, excellent. That's a lot of great stuff to look forward to, including full coverage of every episode of uh, Evangelion. Right? <laughs> How many is that? I don't 100, know. 900? <laughs> I don't know. Probably too many to consider. Four-part um, OVA is more my my sort of uh, style. Like uh, that, that's good enough. Even if it's four, uh, even if it's eight hours, at least it's only four parts. Yeah, so a lot of good stuff to look forward to in 2019. Uh, not sure what we're going to be doing on this side of the podcast spectrum as yet, because uh, I'm still in the pre-production planning stages of uh, some other stuff, and I don't know what's going to be coming our way, you know, actually in cinematic theaters, because I uh, can never really guess with that with distributors over here, but we'll have something to talk about to be sure. So, you know, uh, I hope everybody has a very enjoyable holiday, including my great co-host, uh, co-host Mr. Kenny B, and a happy new year as well. So we will see you next year. Until then, this is the East Screen West Screen podcast saying it is already tomorrow in Hong Kong, and we'll see you next time. He didn't skimp on that opportunity to bake it into the the outro. (laughs) It's already tomorrow in Hong Kong. Well done, Paul. And thank you, everybody.